This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Okay, three, two. Yeah, the first time I met Lenny was at Five Star Basketball Camp. John Sally and Lynn Bias were high school kids, spending the week at the Five Star Basketball Camp. Back in the 1980s, the Five Star Summer Camp was the place to be for elite prospects. Kind of like the big AAU tournaments of today. Except on a campground in rural Pennsylvania. And there was one guy that everyone had their eye on, Billy Thompson, future Louisville Cardinal and Los Angeles Laker. Lenny is giving him the business. You hear me? He is going at Billy Thompson like you wouldn't believe. And then he pump fakes and Billy goes up and Billy comes down and cuts him. And he had a cut over his eye. The cut was so bad that Bias had to go into town to have a doctor stitch him up. So I said, man, you had to go to town? He said, not before I went to town on Billy Thompson's ass. <laughs> Eventually, Bias went to Maryland. Sally went to Georgia Tech. They matched up in ACC games all four years of college. And on the floor, they went at it. But off it. Love, though. Crazy love. Like, I believed I had a brother in the D.C. area. I didn't have any fears if I were to go to D.C. My man's was looking out. I don't know if we lost or won. I never let that get in the way of my life because I know it's a game. I still wanted to hang with my boy. Sally, who would go on to become a four-time NBA champion, remembers being named a 1985-86 Playboy All-American, one of the highest honors in college basketball at that time, and flying to Chicago for the photo shoot just months before the NBA draft. And who am I standing next to? Len Bias. Pearl Washington is in there, and uh, Dale Curry, the Rifleman, uh, Chuck Person, like Brad Doughty, all these cats. And we're in Chicago. So Lenny and I hanging around each other because we know each other. You know, we're meeting all these other guys. You don't really get too friendly. They figure out an idea to put us in suits and take pictures of in our sneakers. And um, Lenny's sitting there with his legs crossed, looking all dapper, and I'm just standing up there in my really bad jacket and red tie. What the hell was I thinking? But anyway, uh, I can say this. They took us to like a bar. 
but there was nobody at the bar. So it was just an open bar for us and guys. And Lenny watched these guys drink like college kids do, but we don't smoke, we don't snort, we don't drink. We're all about how many crunches, how many 17s can you do, how many foul shots can you shoot after that? How high can you jump? How many shots did you take today? So Lenny was like, look at all these guys drinking poison in their body style. He goes, when we get in the lead, I'm destroying him. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm your host, Jordan Ritter-Kahn. The last time Sally saw Bias was at the 1986 NBA draft in New York. They were both staying at the Grand Hyatt the night before. And we are on 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue at a great hotel. But the furthest we go is to the curb. And I'm from New York. He's like, you want to go get a pizza? Like, nah. He's like, yeah, nah. Because we were so afraid that something was bad was going to happen the night before the draft. Chris Washburn is hanging. He's walking out. But Lenny and I were so we're getting drafted tomorrow. This is our dream. Let's just talk about nothing and look at whatever's walking by on the street. And I'm telling you, if you look at every picture, from the Playboy picture to getting out of the van to sitting at the draft, I'm with Lenny. Because for six years, this is what we talked about this day. Sitting next to Bias at the draft ceremony at Madison Square Garden, Sally believed he was going to be selected second overall by the best team in the NBA. I thought I was going to be a Celtic. I'm thinking they're going to draft me. Even though he grew up in New York, Sally was a Celtics fan. And the Celtics president at the time was the legend, Red Auerbach. The same man who'd had dinner with Bias in D.C. a few times and told him that he was going to be the number two pick. Well, Sally had also gotten to know Auerbach, and he thought they had a bond. Red Auerbach has been telling me for months I'm going to be the number two pick. The year earlier, he said the number one player in the country is John Sally. The draft begins. First, the Cleveland Cavaliers take Brad Doherty, the center from North Carolina. That was expected. Teams didn't pass on size back then, and Doherty was considered the best center in the draft. Next up, Boston. David Stern walks to the podium. And he said, the Boston Celtics choose Len Bias from the University of Maryland. He said, see you in the league, Sal. See you in the league, Sal. Bias was going to the NBA, number two overall, shepherded by Red Auerbach, about to become a teammate to Larry Bird. I knew it was going to happen when the guy came over to me when I was sitting down and said, oh, you packed a good Boston. I said, oh, yes, I am. So I'm happy to be picked by Boston. I'm going to try to go out there and play the best I can. Lynn's father was at the draft ceremony, proudly cheering on his son. His mother, Lenise, had stayed home to watch on TV with her three other children. Lynn and his father went directly from New York to Boston. They were scheduled to have a press conference there at the Garden. He's a super kid. He's a hard worker, good work habits. And uh, again, I repeat myself, we're very fortunate in getting him. You can look at the team. You tell they picked nothing but great people with characters and you know, great personality. They don't have any bad apples on this team. And that just goes to show, that, show myself that I'm a pretty good guy. 
The Boston Globe's legendary journalist, Bob Ryan, was there. They fly him up immediately for Meet the Media and Schmooze. And I was doing radio on WEEI in Boston. You know, I could still remember him sitting down to interview with us. He had a gray suit on, had a Celtics hat on. His father was over there in the corner beaming, you know. It was so sweet. It was wonderful. And there's one specific moment from that day that really sticks out in Bob's mind. Somewhere in the middle of all this, Larry Bird did say that he was so excited about bias coming that he was he was going to come back early. He was going to connect. He was really excited about having bias on the team. It was a fan. He, he, he was keeping track of the college crop. He knew who he was. I remember he definitely told me that. After the presser, bias paid a visit to Reebok, with whom he was finalizing a shoe contract. The sneaker wars were in their infancy. Just a few years earlier, Converse had dominated the industry. In the 70s, everyone was wearing Chuck Taylors all across the NBA. But by the mid-80s, other brands were trying to compete. Sonny Vaccaro, a titan of the sneaker industry, worked at Nike back then. He signed Michael Jordan in 1984. He saw that an NBA star could be a far more powerful marketing force than any brand, even the iconic Chucks. Converse was the place to go, but there wasn't marketing done. It was, it was a myth, and I think that's why Michael and you know, Nike reinvented the world. Now Reebok was trying to get involved, and they wanted bias. Everyone wanted bias. Len had a chance for whatever the money was going to be to be the new guy. No doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind. He was a worthwhile investment. It wasn't just that Bias was a great player. It was something more than that. It was charisma. He was charismatic in his game. He connected to the audience in his game. He wasn't a personality because of other things. He was a personality but what he could do on the floor. Vaccaro obviously wanted Bias to sign with Nike, but Reebok had an advantage. The company was based right there in Boston. And the way Vaccaro tells it, Bias agreed to a deal with Reebok before Nike ever even got the chance to make their own offer. If Nike and Sonny Vaccaro would have had a bid for Len Bias, we would have made a bid. I mean, because I was the guy making the bid. The Reebok deal was for $1.6 million over five years. Sonny says that if Nike had been given the chance, they probably would have arrived at the same number. For context, Nike paid Michael Jordan $2.5 million for a five-year deal in 1984. Soon enough, Nike would come to dominate the industry. But at that moment... Len Bias and the Boston Celtics would have made Reebok a player. He would have given Reebok a head start on everything. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. 
to find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So after the draft, Len, his father, and his agent, Lee Fentress, all rode across town for a party at Reebok's headquarters. Bias got some swag for himself and his siblings. And with that, he flew back to Maryland. After a brief visit to his childhood home, he went to campus to hang out with some friends. One of them was Keith Gatlin, who he met in episode one. Maryland's point guard, the man who'd spent years learning how best to get Lynn Bias the basketball. And he was Bias's sweet mate, sharing an apartment with him and a couple of other Maryland players, Terry Long and David Gregg. Gatlin remembers the early days of that summer before the draft. He was in summer school with us and um, it was excitement, but you didn't really know where he was going. So he was just like, I can't wait till this is over so I can finally know where I'm going. And Lenny had a, a puppy that he had got really close to. So he was just like, I can't wait, you know, to see where me and my dog is going. After Bias returned from the draft, Gatlin saw him briefly back on campus. He got back that night after doing interviews in Boston and Obviously, like we're talking now, he was excited and all the guys were happy for him and excited. And we had a conversation about, um, you know, you finally know where you're going and stuff like that. And that was the last conversation that we had, all the guys together in the room. Does anything else kind of stand out in your mind about what what he was like in in that moment? Just relief, um, you know, because... That's a grueling process for a couple of months. Somebody saying you're going to be a West Coast. Somebody saying you're going to be an East Coast. Somebody said they might take this guy in front of you or you might go in front of this guy. So just to get confirmation on where he was going, I saw a lot of relief that he was like, well, I know I'm not going to be too far from the metropolitan area. I'm going to be in driving distance for my family to get there. Obviously, they can fly up anytime and stuff like that. So I, I, I saw him as like a sigh of relief that he was really, really happy that it was over. Derek Lewis, another Maryland teammate, remembers stopping by to congratulate Bias that night. I saw him, when I was seeing him briefly, I didn't stay very long. I had to go to summer classes. I had to go to class morning, so I didn't stay long. I just go say hello, congratulations, and you know, happy for him and, and, and went back. At that point of the night, was it calm? Were they? It was, you know, it was calm. They had, they had just gotten there, and you know, you get around a bunch of guys start talking trash, and you know, how many pairs of shoes you're going to give me, and and all that stuff. You know, you, when you're going to fly me up, and I think it was, it was that type of conversations. That's all Gatlin and Lewis remember. Neither one of them stuck around. Lewis went back to his own apartment. Gatlin, who lived with Bias, went to bed. I don't know what time it was, but it was it was fairly early, maybe 10, 30, 11, or 11, 30 at the latest. And it was confirmation like, oh, are you guys going to go out to party or are you going to celebrate? And Lynn was just like, no, nah, I'm going to go home, see my family for a minute. And then he said, Keith, I'll catch up with you in the morning because we actually had a, a math class at 8 o'clock. So I was like, okay, well, you know, congratulations and stuff like that. And everybody was hugging him and excited. And, and that was it. At some point in the night, early on, but it's hard to say the exact time, Bias's younger brother Jay and his friend Derek Curry went over to Lynn's dorm. Jay and Derek were in high school, still awed by the thought of college life, even more so by the fact that Lynn was on his way to the NBA. Here's how Curry remembers it. 
we talked and, you know, everybody was kicking in happy. And after it got a certain time, you know, because we were still young, right. we left. Yeah. I assume when you all left, you you had no reason to assume. Oh, no. Yeah. Nah, not at all. We didn't even know if Lenny was even going to stay there tonight or go back home. Bias didn't go back home. Instead, he went out with his friend Brian Tribble. Tribble had attended Maryland briefly, and sometimes he played in pickup games with Bias and other members of the basketball team. He and Bias were close. They went to a local liquor store, Town Hall Liquor, a little after 1 a.m. This May, when I traveled to Maryland, I stopped by one night. It's the small storefront just across the street from campus. Liquor store on the left side, bar on the right. The bar is a bit of a dive, but in a charming way. It's known around town as the one bar that attracts an older, non-student crowd. The store's nothing special, but it's got a decent enough selection. I bought a four-pack of beer and went to the register to check out. And I talked for a minute with the cashier named Rob, who said he's been working there for over a decade. Question for you. I'm a journalist working on something. Do you know who Lynn Bias is? Do I know who Lynn Bias is? I know yeah, who he was. was. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, this is the last place he came the night Yes, I do. You do? Okay. His name used to be on that wall before really? they sold the building here. Really? He came in here, he had signed the wall, yeah. they left, and we had it up there until the owner sold, and the new owner. They said he cut that section out and was going to frame it. We haven't seen it yet. Really? But it had. It had Turns out the story about the autograph is true. According to news reports and later trial testimony, Bias came into the store with Tribble. The manager working at the time, Michael Cogburn, later told reporters that Bias was still wearing his suit from the draft. They bought some drinks, and on their way back to campus, they ran into a police officer who congratulated Bias and asked what they were up to. They mentioned they were having a small celebration that they'd just picked up some liquor. The officer replied that, personally, his drink of choice was cognac. And so, inspired, Bias and Tribble turned around and went back to the liquor store to pick up some cognac for themselves. When they got back to the store, Cogburn was excited to see them again. He'd met Bias many times whenever he'd come in to pick up some liquor, but he'd never wanted to bother him. On this night, he told Bias that he was a Celtics fan. Bias was delighted. He signed an autograph for Cogburn. This, it seems, is the autograph Rob is talking about when he says one used to be on the wall in the bar. He said, the new owner says he cut the piece of drywall out that had the signatures on it. Huh. But we haven't seen it since they remodeled. So I don't know. Okay. He was supposed to be framing it and putting it back in yeah. the bar, but we haven't seen it yet. But do most of the people who work here, they tend to know that, that this was his? Uh, anybody who's worked here longer than me. Yeah. How long you worked here? I've been here, Jesus. I've worked here since 2009, okay. 10, on and off. Yeah. For years. Is this um, like the main kind of liquor store for, you know, in the hub of the town? Um, for College Park, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the oldest bar in College Park. Yeah, so. yeah. And so it's always been like this, like liquor store over here, bar over there. Yes. On that night back in 1986, Bias checked out, thanked Cogburn for the congratulations and the cognac, and headed back to campus with Tribble. I tried to talk to Tribble several times, both by phone and in person. We'll focus more on him in a couple episodes, but for now, know that he refused to talk to me, and honestly, he seemed pretty agitated that I was asking him to. But he did sit down for an interview in 2009, 
for the ESPN 30 for 30 film Without Bias. In that film, Tribble described getting back to Bias's apartment, where they were joined by two of his teammates, Greg and Long. I walked by that dorm one night while I was in town, and it's really pretty. This red brick building with big white columns, it opens up into a courtyard with other dorms scattered around the perimeter. The night I was there, some students were sitting on blankets on the lawn. Others were hanging out at tables under a gazebo. It was quiet, serene. It's easy to imagine it on that night in June of 1986, with a lot of campus shut down for the summer. A few friends gathering in a dorm room to celebrate. Long and Greg also refused to speak with me, so a lot of what we know about that night comes from testimony they gave in court months later when Tribble was standing trial for cocaine distribution. The full transcripts have been destroyed by the county, as is standard protocol since the case was so long ago, but I found some excerpts in the book Never Too Young to Die by Lewis Cole. These, along with Tribble's account in the 30 for 30 doc, offer more details on the rest of the night. In his testimony, Long says he fell asleep in the dorm watching David Letterman. Then he remembers Bias coming in around 2 a.m. and shouting, quote, wake the fuck up, we're going to celebrate. Long got up and grabbed a beer from the fridge and came back to the couch where he saw, quote, a pile of cocaine on a mirror. The four of them, Bias, Tribble, Long, and Greg, passed around the coke and had a few beers. When other teammates came by to congratulate Bias, they put the coke in a drawer, hung out for a while, and then pulled it back out when they were alone again. This is an important detail. So many people around Bias said they never suspected him of using drugs. On this night, at least, Tribble said that he, Bias, Long, and Greg were all making a point to hide their use from Bias's other friends and teammates. Over the course of about three hours, they did a few more lines, many more lines. And in later grand jury testimony, which was sealed but leaked to local TV station WUSA, they said that Bias repeated the same sentence while he used cocaine. I'm a horse. I'm a horse. I'm a horse. Bias laid back and put his head down on the bed. After a few moments, he started to convulse. Tribble's sister has epilepsy, so he knew what this meant. Bias was having a seizure. First, he called his mother, panicked, and asked her what to do. She told him to turn Bias over onto his side, and so he did. Long held Bias's tongue. Greg held his body. And then, early that morning, This is Lynn Bias. You have to get him back to life. There's no way he can die. This entire time, Keith Gatlin was in the other room, asleep. He woke up to a phone call. I remember it like it was yesterday. Ironically, uh, my mother called me about 7 o'clock uh, the next morning. And she said, is everything okay? 
And I said, yeah, but I'm glad you called me because my alarm didn't go off and I have an 8 o'clock class. So I got to get up and go to the training table. And she said, you sure everything is okay? I'm, I had a dream that something happened and I'm geared to call your sister and make sure she's okay. I said, well, thanks, but everything is okay. So after I got off the phone with her, I went to the bathroom. I heard some noise in the other room. Gallon entered the room and he saw Bias unconscious. Total pandemonium, total shock for me because um, I was very close with Lenny. But when I got up and I saw the situation, I panicked, rightfully so, being young. It's no protocol on how you react and things like that. I mean, I, I freaked out. I mean, I go out of my room and I go to the bathroom and I look over in the other room and I'm like, oh, no, I'm not dreaming or what? I'm coming out of my single room and I'm seeing this. And then you're going back and waking up the other guys and everybody's in like shock. You, you know, you want the best for the person that you see is suffering and the paramedics are there and they trying to find answers. You're trying to listen to see what's going on. So it's just like total chaos. Gallon took it all in. Paramedics arriving on the scene, doing their best to keep Bias alive, to rush him to a hospital. He didn't know what to do, how to help. The only thing that came to mind was for him to call Anise, Bias's mom. At that moment, she was just a few minutes away, asleep at home. The phone rang about 6.30 in the morning, and the sun was so bright in my room, bedroom until it almost hurt my eyes, like it was so bright. Uh, someone was on the other end of the phone saying that Len was sick and they had taken him to the hospital. And my husband said, what happened? I said, somebody's saying Len is sick. And he said, what? Now, in this moment, in Gatlin's confusion, he made a mistake. I panicked and I actually called his mother and told his mother the wrong hospital that we was going to. And we jumped up and we went to the wrong hospital. So she and her husband showed up looking for Lenny and he wasn't there. Then they rushed over to Leland Memorial Hospital, where Lenny had been taken by paramedics. Meanwhile, Gatlin was already there. That time was anxious. You know, you're waiting, you're hoping for the best, but you know it's not looking good. And you can't really grasp, like, all the emotions. A lot of people were gathering there, including most of the Maryland team. It didn't take long for local reporters to get wind of the news. I got the call from the news desk at about seven. Lenny's at Leland Memorial Hospital, a parent heart attack. That was all they knew. Molly Dunham Glassman, the Terrapins beat reporter for the Evening Sun. It took me about 45 minutes to get down there. And the scene at the hospital was something I'd never experienced before. The kids on the team were there. Most of them just hid their heads and didn't want to talk. We were just waiting to find out what the doctors were going to say. And, you know, the media was talking amongst themselves, you know, the speculation, how could he have a heart attack? Everyone was there, waiting, wondering, praying. At some point in the commotion, Lenise and her husband James arrived and went to their son's room. Everyone was, um, the teammates and other people were there. 
just torn to pieces and people just crying and media and it was just so much. And when we got there, they told us, the nurse said that they had him on, um, not a ventilator, it was something else. They were breathing for him and she was saying that I said, it's his heart beating. We're, we're making everything work. I said, well, he's gone. And she said, no, 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 no. I said, no, he's gone. And they waited until the doctor actually came in and they pronounced him dead. Bias was pronounced dead at 8.50 a.m. on June 19th, 1986. And speaking about it today, Lenise thinks back again to that premonition that sense she'd carried within her for months that tragedy was lurking somewhere in her future, and the realization in that hospital room that tragedy had now arrived. A few minutes later, she walked out of the room into the waiting area. There, she saw her son's teammates, his coaches, the friends who loved him, the reporters assigned to cover him. She delivered the news. When I think about all of the months of suffering that I had endured knowing that something was going to happen. It was like it was building me up and strengthening me for that hour. And at that time, so many of the guys were crying and I was trying to comfort them and trying to comfort my family, my husband. Derek Lewis remembers the shock of the moment vividly. This bias comes out and she said he's gone. And I'm thinking, like, going away, he's going to another hospital? And she just came out and said, he's gone. And, I mean, you see a bunch of guys all break down at the same time, and you're just speechless. And um, she wasn't crying at all. She didn't have a tear in her eye. And um, she's saying to be strong. But it's just just unbelievable, unbelievable scene. Gatlin also thinks back to Lenise's incredible sense of calm. I'm sure she had her moments, but with that particular time when she hugged me, she said, I need you to be strong. I have to go make funeral arrangements. And to have a mother to say that when you just lost a, a son of that magnitude, you know, it was like, it's crazy. Through all of this, Molly Dunham Glassman and the other reporters were standing in the corner of the waiting area watching. It is very surreal. And um, the kids on the team, they were just kids, and they were just too young to be going through that, to lose somebody who had been so vibrant and so strong. I mean, Lenny was such a powerful physical presence that to think that he had been on this hospital bed and just had the life drain out of him was really hard to imagine. So I think a lot of us, and certainly the kids at the time, kind of went into denial. It's, oh no, it couldn't couldn't be true. When Lenise reflects on her own strength in the face of shattering loss, she points to her faith. It was an experience only God can bring me through. And if for real, for real, I tell you, Jordan, if God moved this hand for me right now, I would be crazy. Because just to think about what happened that day, and it's life. That's all. Life is a bowl with the lemon and honey in it. 
and sometimes it's sweet and sometimes it's bitter. And no man can make it up the smooth side of the mountain, only the rough side. And the rough side is where you hurt and you ache. It's just, it's called life. You know, some days peanuts, other days shells. Yeah. And I, I want to, going back to those moments in the hospital, you know, you, you spoke about wanting to comfort everyone else. And that's the thing as I've, as I've read and, you know, gone, gone back over, over Lynn's story. That's something that stands out to me every time is how, you know, you're a mother who's just lost her son. And in that moment, find yourself comforting other people who, who also loved your son. And that, and that sounds so difficult. It goes back to my mission in life and my calling and what God downloaded me with to stand in that hour because I told you, as I shared, I suffered for 18 months with this thing that's going to happen and I didn't know when or where or who it would be. I had no idea it would be Lynn. She was working to comfort the others around her, trying to bring calm in a moment of panic and raw grief. Panic, grief, and confusion. Because at first, most people didn't really know what led to Bias's death. But soon, news would break that the cause of death was cocaine intoxication. There would be reporters and cameras everywhere all the time. There would be investigations, committees. Brian Tribble would be arrested the University of Maryland would fall into crisis. Congress would use Bias's death to pass oppressive drug policies. His story would reach every corner of this country and well beyond. In years to come, the name Lynn Bias would become synonymous with questions that began, what if? But for the moment, most everyone around him arrived at another question, one that was even more painful. Why? Next on What If. One night I was at this big old Hollywood party and everybody, I'm looking around at everybody, I'm watching motion pictures and everything and we're just kicking it. And you're a Laker, baby, you, you know, Laker, Laker, Laker. So I wander back there and this guy says, tell you what now, this is the new thing here in the West Coast. So you cook it and the raw Coke flops to the top. Then you put it on this pipe and you take a puff. Yeah, let me hit it. Let me take a hit. Holy shit. Man, my brain, my head. What's going on? Then I calm down and I'm like thinking, can't wait to have another one. One time I was gone. What If, the Lynn Bias story, is written and reported by me, Jordan Ritterkon. Our producers are Noah Malale, Bobby Wagner, Hannah Beal, and Isaac Lee with production assistance by Isaiah Blakely. Music and sound design by Isaac Lee. Story editing by Mallory Rubin. Copy editing by Craig Gaines. And fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. Thank you for listening. <laughs>